some of the things we talk about in this episode could be potentially triggering. So please be advised. Jenna, can I tell you a secret? Yes, please. When I'm feeling really down, I actually really hate watching happy things. Oh, same here. I love watching depressing or even scary things. It just like to lean into it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And it also says a lot about the human condition and how we feel connected to that. And I personally love to cry a lot and have some go-to <laughs> movies that I know will make me cry when I need to, such as Big Fish by Tim Burton mm. and The Holiday from Nancy Myers. It'll just trigger the tears and I feel better. I think that's really healthy because, you know, I think a lot of us think we should feel happy all the time and like brush it off. But when you don't ever feel sad, then what does happiness even mean to you, right? Yeah, agreed. But it just really sucks when you're in the center of the loss or grief or feeling profoundly sad and it's actively happening to you. I don't think I knew in that moment that I would have these ultimately um, tragic relationships with either one, but, but I knew that both of them were going to be very important in my life. That's Norman Buckley. He's a pretty famous and well-respected television and film director who survived the untimely and tragic deaths of not one, but two partners. The first died from AIDS in 1988. The second suffered from mental illness and took his own life in 2014. In the aftermath of such heart-wrenching loss, Norman hasn't shied away from the pain. Instead, he chose to sit in it and touch the center of his own grief. It became paramount to keep my heart open. The temptation with grief is to contract and to cut yourself off as opposed to recognizing that the pain you feel is the love that you experienced. Imagine you're just getting home from work. You put your things down and sit for a moment in the quiet before you have to get back to life's duties. The house is quiet, peaceful. Too quiet. You call out to your partner, who's usually here too. You spoke to him just a little while ago. Work was stressful, and you can't wait to fill him in on your day and hear about his too. Hello? Where are you, dear? No answer. He must have stepped out. So you call him on the phone. No answer. You send him a text, and you're trying not to worry. Hours pass, and your texts and calls get more frantic. You spend that night pacing in the bedroom that you two shared for years. Where are you? Why won't you answer? Are you still there? The next morning, you're still pacing and really, really worried. It's been 24 hours since you heard from him. You get deep into your investigations and track his location by credit card. The statement says he was in a hotel, so you call the front desk. I know he's staying there. I just need a room number. I'm sorry. We can't give out that information. We respect our guests' privacy. You spend another sleepless night alone, desperately trying to reach him on his phone, at the hotel. You call the police, who finally get the hotel to let you in. And it's too late. He's gone. From Wondery, I'm Jenna Brister. And I'm Wagatwe Wenjuki. This is I Survivor. On our show, we tell you about the attacks, the assaults, the manipulation, the fear, and the triumphs. The people who fought back, who won, who spend each day rising above those experiences, even when their reactions to what happened to someone else. As you heard at the top of the show, today we're talking to Norman Buckley. Norman is a television and film director best known for his work on Pretty Little Liars, Gossip Girl, and The O.C. He talked to us about one of the driving forces in his life, grief. In 1988, he lost his partner of five years, Timothy Scott, to AIDS. Then in 2014, his husband, David Whaley, took his own life in a hotel near their home. After David's death, Norman got help from therapists and a support group for survivors of partner suicide. So we also invited David Kessler, a grief expert, into the studio. David has written five books on grief, including two with the noted psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. All right, so let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Norman Buckley. Norman, thank you for joining us hey, today. I'm happy to be here. And could we start our conversation with a piece that you wrote 
on December 6, 2014, in honor of what would have been David's 47th birthday. Sure. Today is David Whaley's birthday. He would have been 47. The sadness I feel about his loss wraps around me every day like a cold wind barreling down the streets of Manhattan. Then it eases slightly as I take a breath. I don't resist the pain, but instead I open my heart to it, recognizing that the pain is because I loved him so completely. And the love endures. I feel love for him, and I feel love from him. It's inexhaustible and bottomless and goes on and on. I feel this love is completely now as I did when he walked along these streets next to me. It's mysterious and expansive and makes me feel bigger in the face of this cold wind that bears down upon me. And then the sadness ceases to be cold, but becomes more like a warm ache, brought on by an awareness of the mystery and the fragility of life. The same sort of ache you feel when you look at some beautiful painting, or take in some spectacular landscape, or read some powerful poem. And then I realized that the pain has always been there. I felt this sweet agony every time I looked at David during our 10 years together, knowing subconsciously that one or the other of us would die first. The more you feel for another person, the more you are aware of loss, and all of us live with loss every single day, whether we admit it or not. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about the Broadway performer that you were involved with in the 1980s, Timothy Scott. Tim was in uh, the musical Cats with my sister. I was working across the street from the theater where my sister was, was in the show, and so I would go over to the theater after I finished work and just hang out with her in her dressing room when she was off stage. And uh, one night I went up to the uh, catwalk above the stage and I was standing there and and Tim made his entrance for his big number from that same catwalk. And so we were were standing there next to each other and I looked over at him and he looked over at me and I I fell in love like immediately. It It was instantaneous. And so we were together for five years and then it was right at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Um, there was an awareness that something was wrong in New York City at that time. Unfortunately, uh, he did have the virus and uh, was diagnosed in, I think, 86 and then he died in 88. David, I met many years later, but it was also instantaneous. It was, I was walking out of the gym one day and he was walking in and we both stopped and turned around and looked at each other and I said, give me your number. And he did. <laughs> and so both and of those, both yeah. of the, <laughs> was the way it was done for me. But uh, it's very clear with both of those people that, oh, this is important. And you had a really fun and beautiful relationship with David. I was miraculously happy during much of that time. David did suffer from mental illness, and so there was a lot of ups and downs in terms of being able to handle that at various points. But miraculously enough, it never impacted on the happiness that I felt in terms of my connection to the other person. And I I say the same thing about Tim. I mean, in both of those relationships, the level of feeling was so deep. There was um, this other thing, the illness that had to be dealt with, but it it didn't impact on the way that I felt for either one of them at all. It was actually the thing that in both cases drew us together. Remarkable. I think a lot of times people are afraid to really let themselves feel for another person. And when you're confronted with something like a terminal disease, as AIDS was at that particular point in time, It's not anymore, gratefully, but at that particular point, it was a death sentence as soon as you heard that you'd been diagnosed with that. Or with mental illness, the difficulty itself becomes something that draws you closer together and that that makes you not take anything for granted. I never took anything for granted. And particularly since I'd lost one person, the second relationship, I never took him for granted. There was never a day where I was like, ah, you know, take it or leave it. I I I never felt that way. And I've read in some of your writing about when David first started painting. Mm -hmm. I know that there was a time where he was let it go for a bit, and then he went back to art school. Well, what happened was David was uh, a hillbilly child from eastern Tennessee, and he wanted to be an artist, but there was really no way for that to happen. Him coming out of high school, the options were slim, so he joined the Navy. In the Navy, he learned electrical engineering and 
after the Navy, put himself through college and became an electrical engineer, and he worked for many, many years as an IT specialist. Right around the time that I met him, 2004, 2005, he was having some issues with the work he was doing, and so he retired from that. And I was directing a lot in New York at the time, and he would travel with me. I was working on the show Gossip Girl. While I was working, he would go over to the Art Students League and take classes. And he studied there with a couple of very prominent painters who both told him they were like, you're the real deal. You need to be painting full time. So he started doing that. And at first, it was hobby painting. I thought, well, maybe we'll sell some at a garage sale or something. And, <laughs> and then a gallery in Beverly Hills picked him up, and he started selling paintings. At the end of his life, he was selling paintings for $40,000 a, a pop. It was a remarkable ascendancy. It happened very, very fast from the time that uh, he started painting seriously in 2008 to the end of his life. He painted hundreds of paintings and made a great deal of money doing it. And I think on some levels it was confusing to us <laughs> because that level of success was, 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 hard to, was hard to comprehend. Some artists paint for years and years and years and never have the kind of success he had. So it was like he packed a lot into this life uh, that he had. Uh, he was just about to be 47 when he died, but my shrink at the time said to me, and I, I've always remembered this in, in the days right after David died, he told me, you must not view his life as a tragedy. He pulled himself out of poverty. He put himself in the Navy. He put himself through college. He became an electrical engineer and had a very successful career, and then he had a second very successful career as an artist. He had a very successful life. He was in a loving relationship with someone that he deeply cared about and who deeply cared about him. It was a great life. It was 46 years, but it was a great life. Looking back, what were some of the key, I think, moments or challenges or highlights that you either drew on while grieving or that may have helped? As I said, the relationship was a remarkably congenial one. We were together for 10 years, and... I don't think we ever fought. That's not to say that there weren't upsets. That's not to say that there weren't situations that had to be negotiated and worked through. But there was never this sense of attack at another person. And I, I find that to be a remarkable thing, given the level of dysfunction that he had come from. The prior relationships in my life that I'd had, it made me realize that he was a, an unusually sensitive spirit, and I, I just never took it for granted. So I guess the biggest thing that I would say about my relationship with him is that I never took it for granted and that I never took the kindness and the um, open-heartedness that he expressed for granted. I really saw that as a unique and wonderful thing. He cared deeply about other people. He cared deeply about children. He worked with the Art of Elysium, which is an organization that works with terminally ill children. He worked with the Children of War Foundation, which is an organization that deals with war-scarred children. He taught art to seniors and, and, and disadvantaged youth in East L.A. He went to the city and found out that there was budget that wasn't being used for art classes, and he asked if he could set up an art class in a community center. I think that more than anything else in that relationship, I was inspired to keep my heart open. A lot of people want to anesthetize themselves against the, the difficulty of grief. They want to shut down against it. They want to drink it away or only have frivolous experiences. And I think the, the exact opposite is the solution. The solution is to let your experience become deeper and to let your uh, ability to feel things become deeper even if it, even if it hurts. It's essential to my own healing that I really felt the, the pain. <laughs> still, 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 here almost four years later, it's, uh, it still is, is painful. And yet that pain is the thing that keeps me open, both in my creative work and in my friendships. That answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You're nailing it. Yeah. Um, right. Time had passed between losing Timothy Mm -hmm. Tim, and, like Tim you died said, in 1988, and, and David and died in 2014. As far as your own diving into the grief and feeling the pain, like, did you approach any sort of group healing or? I had been in analysis with a, a Jungian analyst for 15 years, and thank God I, I was, and, and David was too. Unfortunately, he died the following year. So it was yet another huge loss for me. In the immediate aftermath of David's death, I, I saw him seven days a week. He made himself available to me to see him seven days a week. 
And he continued to consult with me even after he came down with lung cancer, which was an enormous act of generosity. And so certainly I was um, dealing with the issues that come up, the trauma in therapy. But then I also started going to a group, the D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Center here in Los Angeles is a wonderful organization, and they have, they have groups that are specifically for people who have lost someone to suicide. That's been invaluable. I go there once a month when I can. The thing that I've really gained from that group is so many of us who have lost loved ones to suicide have remarkably similar experiences. I mean, there are real markers to the behavior patterns of those who take their lives. So I'll be in a group and I'll sit and listen to these other people tell their stories and I'll think, well, there's nothing you could have done. There's nothing you could have done. There's nothing you could have done. But it gets to me and I'm, but I should have solved it. You know, I should have been the one to like, you know, keep it all in control. And I think that that's probably one of the big lessons of grief too, is that you don't have control. You don't have control over very much in your life. You have control over your response to events, but you don't have control over other people's behavior. You don't have control over other people's illness. You don't have control over the circumstances that they go through. Their life's journey is their own. You do have control over your response. You do have choice in that, and you have choice in terms of whether you choose to, um, as I said, view it as a tragedy or whether you fall into self-pity, which I think is a very big temptation. You know, there's a real temptation and just want to say, why me? God, why me? And as much as you even go through that, I think you can come out the other side of it and realize your commonality with so much of humanity. So much of humanity suffers on a daily basis. Everybody knows loss. Everybody knows difficulty. Nobody is immune from pain. The real gift of grief is that it opens you up to that. It opens you up to the commonality that you might feel with the entire human race, because everybody at some point will have to deal with loss. I've dealt with it early in my life, and often the AIDS crisis, there are not many gay men my age because they all died in that first wave. I was talking to one friend one night 15, 16 years ago, and I said, well, where's all the guys my age? Because I wasn't seeing anybody at the time. And he said, Norman, they all died. They're all gone. Having lost so many people to that um, horrible disease, I knew loss early, whereas a lot of people don't know it until much later in their lives. That was hard, but I think it's made me a stronger person, and it's made me more courageous in the experience of my life. I think a lot of people are afraid to actually live their life. They, they think it's still out there somewhere, and that's never been a problem for me. Yeah. I've <laughs> been willing to participate full out. Absolutely. And what else in your own life, then, in addition to the group and talking to people, what else did you find yourself being drawn to? Strangely enough, one of the things that I did in that first month, this may sound rather dark, but one night I was at home alone and I was feeling down. And I I think that some people might say, well, you should you know, turn on a comedy or something like that. I did the exact opposite. I watched this documentary about the Holocaust. I remember sitting there watching it and thinking like, this is the perfect thing for me to be doing right now because it reminds me, as I said, that other people have suffered and that other people have suffered unimaginable things. And I was very fortunate. I had a very happy relationship with both of my significant others, and they were both prey to illnesses that were beyond my control. But there was no lack of love there up until the very end. And I feel like that it's almost better that I really confronted those really dark images of the Holocaust. And I read um, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It really threw myself into that which is inconceivable as a way of putting both my own experience into perspective, not discounting my own experience at all, not suggesting that my own experience is not as painful as it was, it was, but recognizing that you know, our human condition is not about just being happy all the time. It's about finding meaning. If I knew now that, okay, you can be involved with these two people, but it's gonna end tragically and you won't know when, I would still do it again because the relationships had that much meaning for me. They were deep. 
you're right. Now that you mention it, I mean, it'd probably be the worst thing to throw on. You know, like, there's something about Mary. You don't want to watch that. That doesn't... Well, I think that it's it's counterintuitive yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> to say, go sad. Yeah. But I do feel like the films that really are books that really have spoken to me in my grief have been those things that have made me go into my grief. The building of the wall against it, I think, is a big mistake. And I think that that's the culture we live in. The culture we live in is that, well, I just want to be happy all the time. To really feel a loss of a loved one is, is an absolutely crucial phase in recognizing how much you love them. If you detach from the experience, then you're detaching from the love. I think that uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had some really profound ideas about the nature of grief. I don't remember all of the steps right off the top of my head, but there's denial, and then there's bargaining, and yeah. and, and then after a certain period of time, you, you do come to acceptance. You can only come to acceptance by going through those other things, <laughs> as uncomfortable as they are. We just have um, a tendency, I think, to... You know, we don't like confrontation. We don't like feeling unhappy ever. We just want to feel on a high all the time. And we're always looking for the things that are going to make us feel that way. And sometimes you really have to go into the valley before you can climb the next mountain. So calling someone the wrong name, forgetting where you parked your car, repeatedly eating spaghetti while wearing a white T-shirt. These are just a few not smart things we've all probably done. Or is the spaghetti plus white T-shirt thing just me? Probably. Anyway, a very smart thing that we should be doing instead is heading to ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor to hire the right person for the job that you need them for. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, then actively invites them to apply. You won't have to sift through a bunch of crappy resumes like you would with other job sites. With ZipRecruiter, you'll get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on over 1,000 reviews from hiring sites on Trustpilot. And right now, iSurvivor listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor. ZipRecruiter.com slash S-U-R-V-I-V-O-R. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Jenna and I live in sunny California, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we get all of the vitamin D we need. When I started looking into getting all of my nutrients, I realized just how expensive it could be. But then I found out about Ritual. For just $30 a month, I get the nine essential nutrients that I need as a woman and none of that extra stuff that I don't need. Unlike other vitamin companies, Ritual uses only clean, high-quality vegan ingredients that are backed by science. They even publish all of their ingredients and sources for you to see yourself. So I've been taking Ritual for about a month, and it's honestly the only vitamin I've actually enjoyed taking. They smell like mint, and they come in these really cool, clear capsules. Oh, and Ritual is subscription-based. So basically it means there's this built-in accountability tool for me. I know my shipment's going to be coming every month, and since I don't want to get behind, I make sure to take it every morning. 95% of women don't get the vitamins and minerals they need on a daily basis. So Ritual created a smarter vitamin specifically for us. Choose clean ingredients backed by science and sign up now. Ritual.com slash survivor. That's ritual.com slash survivor. Were you surprised that you were able to be open after losing Timothy? Because you're right, you never would have met David or been open to that after losing someone so close to you. It took me a long time to have uh, another relationship of the depth that I had with Tim. I had, there were several people that I knew in between Tim and uh, David, some more serious than others. My willingness was always there. I think also once you've really connected to somebody deeply, 
it's not always easy to find somebody who's willing to meet you at that same place, you know, of, of real depth. It just, it's just the nature of, again, our culture. People are frightened to, I'm a big believer in commitment. You know, as soon as I was able to marry David, I married him. You know, I, it was during that period of time when Proposition 8 was uh, on the ballot. And I was like, if we're going to do it, we should do it as quickly as possible because it's going to be harder for them to take it away from us yeah. once we've done it. You know, so we uh, went that day to the courthouse and got our license and then got married the next day. That's extremely romantic. <laughs> I love <laughs> it that. Was, it was just like there was this part of me that thought, oh, I, I just have a feeling that this ballot initiative might pass. But, but once I'm married, they're not going to be able to do anything about it. I both feel love for Tim still 30 years later, and I feel love from him still mysteriously. I, don't, I can't explain it. I'm not trying to, to suggest something that's ghostly, it's, but I feel it. And I felt the same love when I met David. I felt, oh, this is that same experience of love. It's the same information that's coming through. And and so I, I do believe it exists independent of our human personalities. I think we get very attached to the dense manifestation of matter as opposed to seeing that we're only ever information that is that is manifesting almost as like a virtual reality mm-hmm. within this particular form at this particular time, but that, you know, this will wear out and somebody will feel lost about it. Yes. <laughs> you know, they'll feel lost about my uh, form wearing out, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know recently the deaths of both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain kind of put suicide back into the national spotlight. Do you think there's anything missing from that conversation? I wrote about it on... Uh, on my Facebook page the week that that happened. I think the issues around suicide are very complex, and I get very irritated when I hear people talking about it glibly, like, oh, what a selfish choice. Oh, she had everything to live for. Oh, he had everything to live for. I I think that that betrays a, a true lack of understanding about what's really going on. I don't think people override the survival instinct glibly. I think that there are different kinds of suicides, and there are those that are more impulsive acts, but someone who really struggles with depression, as, as both Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade did, and David did as well, or those that have suffered some type of trauma, or there's an alteration in the brain that, that happens. And the medical community are still trying to figure that out. It's not something that's, that's cut and dried. It's not like, oh, well, if if he'd been on Respiradol, it wouldn't have happened. You know, yeah. it's, 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 they don't even know how some of these psychotropic meds work. And I know this because we went through a lot of experimenting with them over the years. The biggest thing that I guess I would like to see talked about more is the idea that when you talk about someone who dies from pneumonia or cancer, you don't talk about it with this kind of glib approach like, they were so selfish that they just couldn't get more breath into their lungs. She had everything to live for and she just stopped breathing. Or those tumors, they just chose to let those tumors, it's it's ridiculous, you would never talk about it that way. And I think the same thing is true with people who suffer from mental illness that leads to suicide. It's very complex and it's very difficult. I got very angry when I would hear people talk about it like these two, individuals had made selfish choices or that Robin Williams had made a selfish choice or or that David I had one friend say that to me one night I went to have a drink with a friend and he said I just can't believe he would do that to you and I'm like oh my god I said I just have to stop you right there he didn't do anything to me if anything there was probably some thought that it would be better for me the the mind becomes extremely distorted he was suffering from distorted thinking. It was psychosis. I believe that psychosis leads to suicide. I think that when somebody actually uh, takes their own life, there has been some type of psychotic break in most every circumstance. That's a very complicated set of um, factors that people know very little about still, and yet people make these blanket statements as though they can judge somebody who's in that horrible state where they would be feeling such pain that they would feel like that was the only way out. So the conversation completely does need to shift. For my money, it sure does. Yeah. And when I see celebrities saying such things, it makes me really angry. Yeah. And so what's the main message you want to share with other people dealing with loss? 
I guess that I would say to people who are dealing with loss that the key is to recognize everyone deals with loss on some level all the time and that it's an opportunity to become more connected to other people but you have to go through the pain and the feeling the difficulty of it to get to that place where you're able to see that you're no different than anyone else we're all going to die and we're all just one step away from losing that person who is most important to us either by us going first or them going first now god knows i wish it had been me that went first before david but that would have presented a different set of circumstances. It would have been very hard for him, and there have been other times where I felt like, well, at least he won't have to deal with that. And uh, I, I do think that the only way through loss is um, to go through it. Be open. Yep. Thank you so much. Oh. Yeah, well, thank you. I hope that I gave you what you wanted. Norman is so open and so honest with his grief, and he's willing to talk about it now. It is eye-opening to get to hear from a survivor of partner suicide who gave himself so fully into his emotions. As difficult as it may be, I really do think talking about it in a safe space can do wonders for the pain. So we asked grief expert David Kessler to come into the studio. David has written several popular books on healing and loss, including two with the psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Here's our interview with David. How did you get into this line of work? Well, you know, no one is in third grade and says, oh, you want to be a pilot, you want to be a police officer, I want to be a grief and death expert. Um, I had a uh, mother who was in and out of hospitals growing up. And when I was 13 years old, she had to go to the big city to the ICU in this hospital. There was a new thing called dialysis. And while we were there, across the street in the hotel where we were, at the same time she was dying, I uh, experienced in the hotel, a sniper, a shooter started. It was one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. It went on for 13 hours. You can see my whole childhood on YouTube. He killed police officers and he killed hotel guests and first responders. And then I got back to the hospital, you know, for my mother to die. I just at a very young age, unfortunately, knew that the ICU death and the way my grief was handled and how the mass shooting, like I knew you could do it better. So I had to go through my own dark nights of the soul in my teenage years and all that. But then I thought, there, there's a better way to do these losses. You know, there, there's a way to find the love in this. Yeah. There are resources that should be here that right. aren't here. Right. Yeah. So we just heard from Norman Buckley about the loss of two partners, one from AIDS, one from suicide. What's the first step that you take with people like Norman to begin the healing process? Well, Norman is just amazing in that interview. He really gives us a blueprint for what to do. And if someone's wondering why they're still stuck in their grief, it could be because they're doing the opposite. So one of the first things I heard from Norman is that he was willing to go through the pain. And what we find mostly in our society is we are avoiding the pain. I was doing a, a book signing a while back, which is very rare these days. There's not a lot of bookstores. But a woman came in and she saw me and she didn't know me from Adam, but she saw the books I had. And she goes, oh, my gosh, my husband died after 30 years ago. And I've been trying this for two years and I've tried this and I need to do that. And how can I? And I said, you've been avoiding for two years. You haven't been grieving. It's the opposite of what we think. Going into the grief, spending time with it is actually the way to move towards healing. And I always caution people, healing does not mean forgetting. You know, healing means remembering in time with more love than pain. And you could hear that with Norman. He was now remembering with more love than pain. So obviously losing a loved one is really tough no matter what. But is it extra complicated when you lose someone suddenly? Absolutely. I think we always have to look at the nature of your relationship with the person and how they died. Anytime a child dies, a sudden death, a death by addiction, a death by suicide, it's going to be more complicated. You know, if your elderly parent dies, it's not that you're not going to grieve a lot, because you are, and I have people who grieve for their 100-year-old mother who died, but it does seem to follow, at least in our mind, what we call a natural order. 
When someone is here one day and gone the next, that doesn't feel like the natural order. When someone dies suddenly by addiction, suddenly by death by suicide, you know, people aren't supposed to die suddenly out of the blue. And there is no one grief that's worse than another. You know, people always ask me, which is the worst grief? And I always say, yours. Your loss is the worst. Forget what anyone else is feeling. Yours is the worst. I love that. I think that's really affirming because sometimes I think people get into, they want to compare and make sure because like, oh, well, others have it worse off. And it's just like, you know, focus on yourself and be kind to yourself. So after Norman's husband, David, died, he watched films and read books about the Holocaust. He says it was really painful, but ultimately it was really helpful, right? Do you recommend this approach to other people? Absolutely. And let me explain why. He went through the stages. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of dying that her and I adapted for grief in our book on grief and grieving. And what he mentioned is that, you know, he came out the other end in acceptance. And then he went on to do something that I call the sixth stage of grief, and this is what I'm writing about now, is finding meaning. And one of the things that seems counterintuitive, just like he said so brilliantly, is that people think, I have to cheer myself up. But one of the things we also have to do in loss is to realize things don't just happen to me. In my work with therapists, the clients that they see the most that are struggling the most are the clients who are going, I am the only one who's ever gone through this. Like, no one has gone through a loss like mine. And subconsciously, when we see movies or read books, whatever it may be, we realize This is part of the human experience, and my loss is devastating, but I'm not the only human. It connects us with others. It doesn't take you to a different place. It just reminds you we're not alone in our grief. And there's something comforting. There's something primal in grief we don't understand, but grief must be witnessed, at least by one other person. We're not meant to be islands of grief. So when you feel that connection, it helps you balance out This is devastating, and I'm not the only one. And he so brilliantly talked about that, and I think we begin to realize our soul, our psyche, our body, we've actually been designed to take hits this lifetime. You know, our parents took hits, our grandparents, our ancestors, but somehow in our society, we've, you know, there's parts of us that are self-focused, that are wonderful, And there's other parts of us that go down a road like no one's ever felt this. That resonates since I know I'm one of those people who don't like to be distracted from things. Like even not even in terms of grief of like losing someone by death, but I will lean into it. Like I love horror stories now because I love not seeing a happy ending or like the chance of it. Like I'm like, oh, let's see these people get murdered. Like let me just lean into it. And so with... Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you adapted her five stages of grief. Her and I did, right? Yes. Oh, you both did it together. We both did, yes. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. We say in there, these are not meant to be a map for your grief. I don't ever say to anyone, here's the five stages, follow them. I would never say that. What Elizabeth did that was amazing, she identified something that just happens in nature. I I had a friend of mine who went through a horrible breakup and I went through the whole thing with her and she was doing the stages like textbook. She, you know, I can't believe he did this. Then she got angry. Then she was like, oh, the what if I had done this in bargaining? Then she got depressed. Then she found acceptance. And in my being with her, I never said to her, you know, you're going through the stages of grief. (laughs) I mean, they they just happen. Right on time. They just happen, right? (laughs) And, you know, they're as individual as we are. Some people don't go to anger. Some people don't go to depression. You know, I just always like to say they don't have to be linear. They don't have to be a map. Don't take that on. That's not what Elizabeth meant or we certainly talked about in our adapting of the stages. So why did you do the adaptation? I'd love to hear more. Like, what led up to that decision? Well, I think that... So many people were adapting them with misinformation that we felt like, given Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the source, we wanted to adapt them the way she saw them. You know, some of the misinformation is, oh, we don't really go into denial. You don't deny they died. And you're like, if you read, no one's saying you denied. No one's going, I'm not going to the funeral because they're alive. What people say is, 
I just can't believe they're gone. And denial is actually a positive coping mechanism because if your loved one died and you felt all the pain in one day, you could not get up. So it takes us from reality to distraction. I can't believe they're not here. That's a healthy denial that helps us. I love that. It's like a way that the brain is kind right, of Right, that the brain's working itself. and protecting. And all these are protective mechanisms. Anger is like, um, for a lot of people, it's a go-to emotion. Some people go to anger. Some people go to sadness. And with anger, we live in a society that doesn't like it. You know what memes are on Facebook? You know, there are mm-hmm. quotes on a picture these days. And there was a meme that I saw that said, for every day you smile, you get another day of life. And for every day you're angry, you lose a day. And I was like, that pisses me off. <laughs> and then I was, oh, shoot, I just lost another day. And, and I want you to think about this. Like, if I say to people, name the top things you're angry about. You're angry about traffic. You're angry about your kids aren't doing what you wanted. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend's not doing. Your spouse isn't doing what, you know, the food is late. I mean, something like that. And then death or a divorce comes to our world and we're like, you shouldn't be angry. It's not cool. It's not spiritual. And it's like, no, it's a natural emotion. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like there's been this shift where it's like we tell people not to have emotions, right? It's like suppress. we're the first generation that has emotions on emotions about emotions. <laughs> yes. I'm sad. Oh, but I feel guilty that I'm sad. I'm angry, but I judge that I shouldn't be angry. And it's like, stay in your first generation emotions. Let go of the commenting. Just feel those first generation emotions. Hey, I'm Brooke. And I'm Marisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich, a show about the occasionally outrageous behavior of people who have a lot of money and a lot of feelings. On our next season, we bring you a story that combines sibling rivalry, high fashion, and murder. Gianni and Donatella Versace built one of the most iconic fashion labels in the world. But when Gianni gets shot, it's up to Donatella to step out from behind her brother's shadow and try to save the brand they built from ruin. Subscribe to Even the Rich, The House of Versace, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free. We talked a little bit about this. You mentioned now, you know, everyone's different. There's different techniques. So what would you encourage for people um, if they're experiencing grief and they want some coping mechanisms? Well, let's talk about just sort of how Norman said it so brilliantly. Number one, to either by it happens naturally if you're in a grief group. It happens naturally if you're looking at movies or reading books to realize I'm not alone in this. The other thing is he said you have to go through the pain. You can't avoid it. The truth is your loved one shouldn't die and you'd be okay. You should be having a tough time. Also, the thing I thought he said so brilliantly is through the process, he continued to love. And what we don't realize that happens is how our mind works is we go, this person dies, they're not here, I have to stop the love, they're gone, it's got nowhere to go, this feels horrible. But instead, he continued to love. And when you just let the love flow, that's part of your healing. I still believe that when they died, we didn't stop loving them and they didn't stop loving us. But if our mind goes, they're dead, no more, there's this block that makes it worse. The other key I would give people is there is a distinction between pain and suffering. You know, my mantra that I live by and work by and and have written about is, pain from loss is inevitable, suffering is optional. Now, if someone's Jewish or Catholic, I've just confused them because they were taught, you know, pain is suffering. What I mean by pain, and and Norman touched on this, I don't even think he kind of thought about in this terms, but he was doing it organically. So one of the things he talked about is the pain is part of the love. I don't ever take someone's pain away. Your loved one dies and you're supposed to be in pain. That is part of the love. Suffering is what our crazy mind says. You shouldn't be grieving, or they were only a hundred, or they did this to themselves. All those crazy things our mind says, the comments it's constantly making, the judgment. You know, well, no wonder they left you. I mean, just look at you. I mean, no one is crueler to us than we are. 
And so if you can turn or ignore that commenting voice, that's your suffering. Because your suffering is usually going to find someone to blame, someone else or you. Death doesn't just happen. Someone's got to blame. And we turn on ourselves in grief. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's something we can practice with, not even just grief. I'd love to talk about your latest book. You wrote it with Louise Hay. It's called You Can Heal Your Heart, Finding Peace After Breakup, Divorce, or Death. First of all, can I get a copy? Second of all, (laughs) are the emotions a person feels the same after a breakup, divorce, and death? I would say no. First of all, I just want to say one thing about Louise. Louise found one of the loves of her life at 88 years old. So whenever anyone says to me, I'm too old for love, I'm like, are you 88? Because you could still find love at 88. Louise did. I think what happens in our romantic lives is there's so much pressure about finding the one. And I know many times in my retreats, people are crazed about, I had the one and they got away and they're now, you know, got a new girlfriend and they have a new kid and da, da, da. And I'm like, no wonder life is awful. If you live in a world where there was one person for you, I mean, you're screwed. (laughs) But I don't live in a world where there's one person for us. I mean, I live in a world where we have the opportunity for a million soulmates. And if you find it once, you can find it again. And if you haven't found it once, it's still possible. You know, and also so many times we want that one person to be everything to us. And that can't be. I have a dear friend who said a while back, you know, I'm looking for a guy who does this, this, and this. And, you know, he eats exactly like me. He goes to yoga classes like me. He likes to swim every other day like me. And I'm like, that's just a carbon copy of you. That's going to be really boring. (laughs) I mean, you actually, you don't want that. Right. You know, you want things to sort of meet in the middle on things, but they've got their stuff. You've got yours and you explore each other's world. So, you know, there is this sense when we talk about divorce and breakups and betrayal that there was one, they got away, life is screwed up now, and there is no fixing it. And and unlike death, death, there's a really clear physically they are gone. In a breakup, divorce, betrayal, they could actually be across town still hating you or not loving you. I mean, that in some ways, it's an added craziness that like, Someone's rejecting you daily on the planet. That's where your mind can go to. Like, every day I wake up and they don't want me again today. It's torture. I've definitely been there. Yeah. Right. Haven't we all? (laughs) Haven't we all? Yeah. Can we talk about crying? Because that's such a thing growing up. I remember, you know, you're always told not to cry or, like, to not show emotions or get upset. And now as an adult, I love crying. And I almost look for opportunities to do it. I have certain movies that I can watch put on Big Fish and I will bawl my eyes out because that feeling I don't know if that happens to you also where you can just feel it like you need a release of emotions I don't self-medicate I don't pop pills or anything and so I'm not which is I mean all the power to it if you need to but we can talk about that in a minute if you want (laughs) I, I love the idea that it's just safe to cry and I think that's such a social norm that I, I don't know, needs to change. So yeah. let's talk about that. Marianne yeah. Williamson, who's a friend of Norman oh. and I's both, she has a great quote that, uh, and I don't have the numbers right, but the quote is something like, you know, if you've got 600 tears to cry, you can't stop at 200. You know, you really have to cry all your tears. And one of the things that relates back to Kubler-Ross's stages is that we don't use the word sadness anymore. We use the word depression. Hey, I heard you got some bad news. Oh, yeah, we got bad news at lunch. We were so depressed, but now we're okay. Really? You went into a whole depression at lunch, but now you're okay? We don't know how to say, I'm sad. We don't use that term anymore. And when we allow ourselves to just say, I'm sad, it gives permission. Now, what do we say in our society? We say, be strong. Be strong is code for don't have feelings, right? So one of the things I I do when I work with people, especially with groups, is Kleenexes or tissues are on the floor. And if someone begins to have tears, the person next to them cannot start patting them and hugging them. And we don't shove tissues in their face because all that says to the person, stop crying. I'm taking care of you now instead of just being in that emotion and crying. Like you said, just crying those tears. We just want to cry our tears and then we'll be done. 
And I also say to the person who's doing the hugging and shoving the tissue, you're avoiding your feelings by being a big caretaker. What do you think about her tears? What feelings does it bring up for you that she's sad? Are you ever sad? What's inside of you? And sitting in that grief. Just sitting. And just holding space. Sitting. Yeah. And the thing is, when we talk about how to comfort people, and on grief.com, one of the pages that gets visited the most is the best and worst things to say to people in grief, as you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> and um, like I know get how you it. feel, <laughs> get over yeah. it, move on, you're young, you it's can not get married, deal. you can have another kid, all that stuff. It isn't like they died, all that. <laughs> Part of what we try to do is to not fix the other person because the other person is actually not broken. They're in grief, which is part of the human condition. So part of what we want to do for a loved one is to just be with them. There's no right things to say. There's nothing like, you know, when your loved one dies, what am I going to say that's going to make it better? Instead to just go, I don't know where this is. I don't know what this is like for you, but I'm here with you. I'm just here with you. You're not alone. That's what we want to know. It comes back to our grief being witnessed. And being comfortable in that. And, and being not comfortable. worrying about... You're right when Norman mentioned that thing about, you know, people wanting to cheer him up. Oh. You know? It's like... Anyone who's in grief knows, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. It's not... That's not what it's about. You can't just go to Six Flags and be like, my right. life is amazing. There's a time where someone's in grief and they want someone to go, it must be horrible you don't have them to hug at night. And there's other times you might want to hear... On a certain level, they're not gone. But if I'm missing them in my bed that I don't have my wife, my husband, my partner to hug, and you go, oh, they're still here just on another plane. It's like, screw you. They're not just on another plane. I can't hug them. I can't be with them. We can't go on a meal together. Don't tell me they're just here on another plane. You know, so we want to know what people need and sometimes just, just to be with them and they'll guide you. What's the most surprising find that you've had in working with people in your workshops? Has anything been surprising about human behavior or how we grieve? No. Or is it pretty predictable? Is it pretty like... Yeah, grief is a predictable road, you know, for someone like me. Now, when you're going on it suddenly, like even me as a grief expert, when I get in grief, when I lose someone, it's not like I go, oh, I'm a grief expert. This is good. I mean, I, I go through I it. I wrote the book on it. Yeah, I got no, this. Yeah. I go through it like everyone else. I mean, it's unknown terrain when it's your loved one. And it's sort of terrain to be dealt with, you know, and to be honored and to know part of the terrain is part of the love. People are surprised by the, the opposites you deal with. You know, the idea about, first of all, I often talk about early in grief. And I feel like early in grief is two years. And, you know, those things about that first year, you do just need your pain witnessed. The second year I'm going to talk to people about, reach out to someone else. To begin to realize you are not the only one going through this, like Norman said so eloquently. That's important. We're, we're in this together. And I think people are surprised to learn those things. And, and I think I'm so surprised about how much we don't want to admit we're grieving and we have shame around it now. Like we become a society of shame. And also I think people don't know how to respond. And I notice a lot of folks just clam up. Like I know I am very picky with how people comfort me, which yeah. sounds really weird, but I know what I like. I know it works for me. And people are just not equipped to speak with people who are really struggling, who are grieving, or even if it's not death, but like a betrayal, divorce. I mean, I've had divorce friends. It's all friends. catchable. Yeah, You know, you teachable. can catch it. I yeah. might catch your divorce. I might catch your, <laughs> your, your, your loved one died of suicide. Right. I mean, it could be yeah. contagious. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'm glad you have that list, like what not to say, because I think a lot of people just don't know, and they say the wrong stuff. And, and you know, yeah. I always tell people a cue is any sentence that begins with at least <laughs> is going to be minimizing. Yes. At least they were 100. At least you found out quick. At least they died quick. I'd also love to talk about death by suicide. I, I thought Norman said some really important things. We, we want to use the terminology when we can, death by suicide. We want to treat death by suicide like the other physical illnesses. You know, you, you would never say my grandfather was a, you know, a ruptured gallbladder. But people would go, oh, your uncle was a suicide, wasn't he? You know, we don't want to make how someone died their identity. And we have found that people, when a loved one dies, get around 79% support from friends and family. When your loved one dies, 
by death by suicide, you get around 29%. We give you much less support because, as Norman pointed out, we mistakenly believe you had a hand in doing this. I mean, your loved one had a hand in it, so why would I attend their funeral? And whether it's death by addiction or death by suicide, we are realizing those are progressive illnesses that get worse, no different than cancer. No one wakes up and chooses to be mentally compromised. No one wakes up and chooses to be addicted. Those things happen to us in life just like cancer does. And so when your loved one dies by addiction, by death, by suicide, they're not doing anything to you. They were in pain and they were trying to figure a way through their pain and their mind got lost and distorted. And I think sometimes the things we say to kids are actually true for adults. People will say, how do I explain death by suicide to a child? I'll go, tell a child that we can have an illness in our body that we can die from, and we can have an illness in our mind that we die from. And that's what addiction and death by suicide are. And we have to give people the exact same amount of support. You know, a rule is, if you wouldn't say it to someone who has cancer, a loved one who died by cancer, you shouldn't say it to someone who died by addiction or death by suicide or mental illness. Definitely. Uh, thank you for, for saying that. I think more people need to know that. And they don't. We were taught mistakenly. It's selfish. They chose it. I mean, usually what happens in my lectures and stuff is people all say, does anyone disagree with this? And someone will go, yeah, I disagree. I completely think they chose it. They did this. They did that. They took the drug. They didn't take their medications, whatever it may be. And usually someone else will stand up and say, I thought that exact thing myself two years ago and for my whole life until my brother died. You know, once it hits you, you realize your loved one isn't this selfish person who's being addicted or this selfish person who's got mental challenges. They're fighting a battle where they probably have more courage than you do to bring to the battle. I mean, I get up and I'm okay. I don't get up and have to fight demons every day the way I've seen other people have to fight. The statistics are so sad. Very sad. sad. Very sad. Yeah. And, And I think, you know, one of the big messages I would love people to know is that no matter what you've been through, no matter how tragic, and it is tragic, and it is devastating, and, and you know, in my work, I try to help people go through the pain. Peace and happiness are possible again. And not only are they possible, that's what our loved one would want for us. They would want us to find joy and happiness again, and that's kind of what I try to teach gently, slowly, lovingly. Other people's grief is not your business. How your sister's grieving the death of your mother isn't your business. And your grief actually isn't her business. So when we have that family member that, like, they're not grieving enough, to get out of their business and tell them to get out of your business. Everyone grieves differently. You know, grief is as unique as our fingerprint. We could have the same mother, but we didn't have the same relationship. Would you say that, because this resonates with me in terms of thinking about, like, rape survivors, right? If you always like, oh, well, she smiled in this photo the next day, so clearly she wasn't raped. But like, Or people say, like, oh, well, she was doing cartwheels. I think even like a— Yeah, they don't know about trauma. Yes, exactly. They don't know how trauma works. Mm -hmm. They don't know how trauma works. And trauma, you know, we we have the ability as human beings to compartmentalize it to survive. And the same thing in grief. I saw her smiling. How can she smile after he died? You know, it's like, okay, your loved one would actually want you to smile. I hope you do. I do stand-up comedy. My grandfather passed away about a month ago, and I found out at a comedy show, I laughed out. I mean, I I started crying, but then I laughed at the absurdity of just being out and having to perform stand-up. I was like, this is horrible. What am I doing with my life? You know, but but it is that reaction where something's got to leave my body, and I was like, this is so sad. And but some, you can't judge it. It's just, it is what it is. And that's how life happens sometimes. Yeah. It just happens in those moments. And, you know, I actually have a family member who's a sitcom comedy writer, and he would go, oh, your writing is so meaningful. And I'm like, I need your comedy afterwards. So we need a world with all of it. So thank Absolutely. you for being a comedian. We need it. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Yeah. yeah You're so welcome. Us. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm really touched by our show today because I feel like our guests really show a way to 
live. They are just so in touch with wanting to experience the full spectrum of being human. Yeah, no one's immune from experiencing grief. And it comes in so many forms. And I think being open to feeling the grief, whether it's losing a pet, a partner, something very, very dear to you, you know, diving in. And we can find more resources on that also. David referenced his website, grief.com. So if you are experiencing any sort of life events or turning points that are pointing you towards grief and anything resonated in this episode, go visit grief.com because there's a lot on there. And I think that's it for today. What an episode we've had, right? Yeah, I learned a ton. From Wondery, this has been I Survivor. Thank you to Norman Buckley and David Kessler for joining us. You find links to the David Whaley Foundation and David Kessler's books on grief in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of I Survivor. If you did, subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you're listening on a smartphone, scroll down or tap the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find our email address there, isurvivor at wondery.com, and links to our Facebook group and social media profiles. And I also want to give a huge thank you to everyone who's been sending us emails and sharing their stories. They're so moving, and they inspire us to keep making this show. And if you haven't already, you can support the show also by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It really helps us keep the show great. iSurvivor is hosted by me, Wagatwe Wanjuki, and Jenna Brister. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. iSurvivor is produced by Leah Sutherland. The executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive producers for Wondery are Marsha Louie and Hernan Lopez. FedEx has been used to mail everything from urgent contracts to a three-and-a-half-year-old panda named Bao Bao. But when overnight shipping first came along, no one knew if customers would really pay more for the service. And for a while, they didn't. In fact, at one point, FedEx was in such dire straits that founder Fred Smith went to Las Vegas to gamble the company's future at the blackjack table. I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery Show Business Wars, and we go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. In our latest series, we unbox the shipping wars as upstart FedEx takes on the behemoth UPS. Listen to FedEx versus UPS on Business Wars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app.